You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning all. This may not be a traditional uh, kind of happy Thanksgiving um, uh, scripture today, but we're going to nonetheless dive into, I think, a wonderful passage uh, this morning for us. Uh, happy post-Thanksgiving to you all. I could see, as, as Michael said earlier, perhaps some are, are have a little food hangover or still traveling, but it's great to see you all this morning with full bellies and, and perhaps a, a good uh, week of Thanksgiving, uh, perhaps some shopping over the weekend. I don't even know if people still do that anymore. Do people still Black Friday shop? I don't know if that's a thing. Um, I do know that my wife was, was telling me, I was talking to someone earlier, I, I feel like Black, Black Friday has become for us the day where we realize how many email subscriptions we have uh, to random businesses that we didn't even know existed, uh, but somehow I've gotten our information. So I uh, hope you had a great week, and although I know it can be kind of sluggish coming off of a holiday I know we can, we can sit here and, and be very comfortable today, but I, I pray that we would be encouraged today, that we'd be awakened to God's word this morning as we read it. Now, as we look at this passage, there's something very intuitive that it's going to teach us about the human heart. And that is something that, that we all know, even if intellectually we don't want to believe, and that is that, that we desire to have kings in our lives. We desire to have a king to rule over us. In some ways, in some ways we want to coordinate ourselves king over others. Uh, we, we try to try to find ways to do that. Um, and now, growing up, I was I was never that kind of guy. Um, I was never popular enough, or smart enough, or quite frankly, I was too awkward um, to become anything like a, a homecoming king, or a prom king, or a class president, or anything of that sort. My ambitions was simply to wear athletic shorts every day and play sports. So that was the extent of my ambition in life as a kid growing up. But even now into adulthood, I still find myself wanting to prove myself worthy of being a king over something. So I, so I look at the silliest things, and usually it's athletics because that's, that's one thing I think I'm still somewhat good at, and I try to, try to find something I'm the best at so I can crown myself king. So this week, uh, at Thanksgiving, we played a lot of cornhole. We have a lot of cornhole fans in the house. We have a few. Um, and, and I'm just going to have to count, crown myself king of cornhole because uh, I dominated. But, but cornhole is a two-person player, so I have to give Abby the, the title of queen um, because she's the silent killer, actually. Um, she's the one who won it for us. But look, look, there's so many ways in which we try to crown ourselves king over something. One of my favorite shows, The Office, has an episode of, of Dwight, who is one of the, the most hilarious characters on TV. He uh, kind of set the stage for you in this episode. Dwight decides to set this kind of like festivity up for kids in the parking lot of an office building, and uh, he calls it Hay World. Okay, and he brings out all these bells of hay, and he has all these weird activities uh, for these kids to come. And at the end of it, the goal of it was that all these kids would do these activities. At the end of it, one child would be crowned the hay king, would be the king of it. Okay, there it is. Um, but he crowns himself king instead. And, and this is the quote from the, the, um, from the episode. He says, did I truck 300 bells of hay to a parking lot to rectify some childhood disappointment? Yes, I did. <laughs> right? And, and I, I use this as an illustration today because I think this is so telling of our human heart. It's so telling of who we are. We will do anything and everything, go to extents that seem ridiculous to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. But when we find ourselves on the throne of our lives, what we find out is that we're actually not powerful enough, we're not compassionate enough, we're not loving enough, we're not wise enough to stay there. And so inevitably what we do is we seek out other rulers to give ourselves to. We seek out other kings to adore. 
because intuitively we know that there should be someone who is above us who rules with wisdom and compassion and, and, and love and power. A, a king who will come back when everything around us is falling apart, a king who will sweep in and save the day and rescue and make everything right. And, and all the old stories that we tell ourselves as kids, we see this theme. Whether Robin Hood or King Arthur or even my favorite Lord of the Rings, there, there, there is themes here of a king who comes and he makes everything right. And even though we have in history, story after story after story of tyrant kings, somehow we're still drawn to this idea of wanting someone to rule, wanting someone to come in and save the day. We crave it in our hearts. That's why in every society that still has some kind of royalty left, they're obsessed with their royalty, are they not? And even in the United States, where we don't have royalty, we will do everything in our power to create them. We will take billionaires and, and professional athletes and media pop stars. We will crown them the king of rock and roll, the king of pop, King James, Queen Bee, whatever it is. We will find ways to crown them into, and, and as they hold court in our society, we want to adore them. We want to follow them. We want to put ourselves under them. Why is that? Because as Psalm 2 is going to teach us, we are built for a king. We are in need of a king. There is a memory trace in the human race all the way back of a story of a great king who rules with compassion and glory and power, and he is the one that we're built for. And so in life, we strive day in, day out to fill our lives with a king that can rule over us when who we really need is when the one that the Bible teaches us to live and trust in. And Psalm 2 is going to teach us of that today. Our main idea is simply this, that Jesus is the king we need. And all the intuition of our heart's craving of a king to rule, of someone that we can adore, of someone that we can come under, there is one that we can actually do that with and flourish, and that is Jesus. He is the king that we need. And the context here of Psalm 2, which is uh, kind of the, our final psalm in this mini-psalm series as we prepare ourselves for the Advent season, Psalm 2 is coming to this place of a, kind of an installation of a king. And as we read this, it's like a coronation psalm. It's, it's coronating king on, uh, on Zion, Jerusalem, a king of Israel. And we can read it as such. We can see it in its historical context of a, of a king uh, being installed uh, in Zion and the foes and the hostility around it of these foreign nations. But, but we can also see that this psalm points to something much greater than that. Because as you read it, you start to realize that no earthly king can completely justify the power and the fury of the threats of this psalm. And as you read it, you also notice that no earthly king can justify the glory of the promises of this psalm. It has to point to something bigger, that this anointed one is far too great in this psalm to be represented in any earthly king. And so as we read the psalm, we're going to see is that it actually is pointing to Jesus as the king. It's a messianic psalm. It's talking about someone greater than the one who wrote this, David. It's talking about a greater king than him. It's pointing to the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus himself. And we know this because if you look at the New Testament, Psalm 2 is, is quoted several times pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And so our outline is going to flow from the text with the idea that Jesus is the king we need. We're going to look at three points from this, this text that hope will help us see this intuition in our hearts to desire a king. Number one, we're going to see that there's the universal resentment of the king, that we fall into this category as well. All of us have a resisting uh, power in our hearts to the king. And then we're going to see that there is one true king, that even though we resist him, there is one that we are built for. And then thirdly, we're going to see that there is a way to actually live for this king today in the close of this psalm. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. Verse 1 of Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, as I just briefly mentioned, this is written by King David, who is a government leader in Israel, and this is a tumultuous political season for him. It points out in verse 1 that there are nations that are raging, there are kings of the earth that are setting themselves against the Lord and his people. But what's remarkable about this psalm as we read it in its totality is that in this chaotic background of this political tumultuous time, God is not the least bit anxious. And you can see that in verse 4, which is the next verse, where he says that he sits in heaven and he laughs. His response to the rage, his response to those setting themselves against him, his response to the nations warring and the people plotting is that he thinks it's funny. <laughs> he thinks it's cute and pathetic. That these kings would try to put themselves in his place. Now again, uh, we, this is talking about government leaders and, and political figures and, and kings of the day, but, but Psalms 2 is not a referendum against government or against government leaders. That's not what he's saying here. Okay, um, At its best, governments and, and political leaders are a great servant of Christ and his kingdom. But at its worst, and oftentimes we experience it at its worst, it could be a miserable substitute for Christ and his kingdom. And that's what we're seeing here. That these kings are, are warring, they're raging, they're plotting, they're scheming. That these people are against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that word anointed, as you can see there in, in verse 2, can refer to King David himself. Right? It's a kind of, again, a coronation psalm of anointing, of installing a king. And by nature then referring to his people, the, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, as his anointed people. But we also see the parallels here in the New Testament. That this word anointed is given to Jesus himself. That this capital A anointed is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has been anointed, and thereby his people, us, the one who the Bible says is a holy nation, a royal priesthood, who come and serve the world, the world under Christ, the King. So it's saying here that, that Christ is the one who is the anointed one here, and we as his people are those who have been anointed as well. But notice the resentment of the king in the kingdoms. Now, this resentment, this resistance, this rage doesn't just happen in this moment in history. This, this resentment, this resistance, this rage has been happening throughout history. In every single season of history, governments and people have war against God because the, it's teaching us something here about the basic impulse of the human heart, that deep down, we all resist him. Look at verse 3. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now you can read that and you can say, well, it sounds like the, 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 this anointed one that this psalm is pointing to, it sounds like he's kind of ha has these kings of the earth in captivity, kind of like they're bound in prison, they're trying to break out, they're trying to get their freedom. But that's actually not what verse 3 is talking about. In fact, the, the most literal translation of the word cords, uh, even the bonds language there is the word yoke, which is a farming term. In other words, what, what it's saying here in verse 3 is the kings of the earth are not upset because they're kind of imprisoned in these chains. They're upset because there's someone above them. They're upset because that means that, they are, that there's someone that they owe their allegiance to. They're upset because this is showing that they are owned by someone who is their creator. The idea of a yoke is something you put on an ox or a harness on a horse. It signifies ownership. It signifies that, that you are someone who can demand there to be yoked because you are the one who is above them. And what verse 3 is showing us is that there is someone who is above us. 
there is a creator, and if he is our creator, then he has rights over us, and our hearts want nothing to do with that. Because deep down, just like the kings of the earth, we want to say, no, I am my own. What verse 3 is showing us is the basic impulse of our hearts, which Romans 8 puts some language to it for us. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the mind of the flesh, and, and, and by nature, the heart is hostile to God. It would not submit to God, nor can it, because our hearts are injected with a, a poison of an anti-godness, a rage, as we see here in verse 1 and 2, a rage and a lust for power and control and keeping our hands on our own lives rather than recognizing that we're not our own. Well, you might say, well, I, I know not everybody in our society believes in God, but I don't see people, the, 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 the person on the streets right now, it doesn't seem like they are hostile. It doesn't seem that the average person, even in D.C., hates God and conspires to plot against him like the kings here. But precisely what this psalm is teaching us is that to resist and resent God is to say, I want control of my life and there is no king above me. It is to say that there is no creator who has rights over me. And we do this in, in a few different ways. Oftentimes, it, it, it causes us to be skeptical of the existence of God. Because if we can maintain our skepticism of God, then we can, we can believe a false narrative that there is no God who is over us. There is no God who demands our allegiance. There is no creator who has created us. Or we can go the other route, actually. And we can actually use religion and morality as a way to show that we don't need a king. We can do enough good to show that we actually don't need a king to reign over us because of what we can do. Flannery O'Connor, who, who um, she writes in one of her stories, this, this wonderful quote, she says, there was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. That's pretty insightful, right? That there's actually a way to avoid Jesus as king by avoiding sin, by our own morality, by using religion as a way to, 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 to mask the deep down truth that our hearts are hostile to God. That they're hostile to this idea that he is king. So our application here for this first point is simply this. That the first step to a need for Jesus as king, the first step to becoming a Christian, is to realize that we all resist and resent the king. Just like the nations who war against here. Just like the kings who plot against. We too resist the king. We too have hostility in our lives against God. We too struggle to yoke ourselves to him. We struggle because we, we, we believe that it's restricting our freedom, that it's restraining our freedom. But as this psalm will continue to teach us, we are built for him. And if we don't take his yoke upon us, we will place another yoke of a king upon us that will be restless and burdensome. If we first don't realize that the natural impulse of our heart is to run from him, to resist him, to resent him. But when we begin to realize that, that is the first step that the Spirit of God can use for us to come to him. As Matthew 11 tells us, Jesus says, come to me. And as we come to him, what does he promise us? He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and light. You see, when we come to the true king, honestly, as those who realize that in our hearts we have resented him, we've hated him, we've wanted control of our lives, when we come to him, honestly, there is a yoke exchange that happens. Now on the cross, Jesus takes the unbearably heavy yoke of our desire for control, of our desire to be our own king, to master our own souls. He takes that and sends condemnation, and he gives us his yoke instead, which he promises is light and easy. And the burden is easy because all it requires is that we trust in him as king, as the anointed one. 
and we do that, he does all the work for us, and Matthew 11 promises we get all the rest in return. Who wouldn't want that kind of yoke? Now, I think there's another application here for us. It's more on the surface level of how we respond in this world. Because we do live in a society, and we do live in a point in history where we see that there are kings and kingdoms in this world that, that war against the Lord that rage against him, that plot against him, just like we see in verse 1 and 2. So how do we respond to that as citizens? How do we respond to that as people who live in a world where there are governments, where there are kings, who at times, where there are leaders who at times will war against the Lord? Well, C.S. Lewis says it this way, we've quoted this several times, that the citizens of the heavenly city will become the best citizens of the earthly city. In other words, we see this in Jeremiah, we see this in the book of Acts, we see this in the New Testament, and in Jeremiah, under a tyrant king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon, the people of Israel are, are brought into captivity. And what does the word of God teach the people of Israel, even under the tyrant reign of a, of a king who would plot against the Lord? He tells them to seek peace in the flourishing of Babylon. He tells them to be the best, most life-giving, most neighbor-loving citizens of that nation that has taken you captive. And we see this again in the New Testament. Under Nero, who was scorching the earth, trying to take as many people out who believed in God as he possibly could. And in that context, Peter writes in the New Testament that we align with Jesus as our king, then we should fear God and honor the king. Now, even with that, how do we live with this? Well, there are times where we should resist the kings and the nations that plot against the Lord. There is that type of resistance we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Again, go back to Daniel in, in Babylon. When government authorities are asking us to do something that directly contradicts obeying obedience to God, we should say to them, just like we see in the book of Daniel, O king, I would rather be thrown into a furnace or eaten by a lion than to obey you instead of God. Or as we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where the leaders of the day were trying to forbid Peter and the, uh, the, the other apostles, the other disciples of proclaiming Christ. It is for us in those moments to say, far be it from me to obey man rather than God. There is times where we should resist the kings that plot against the Lord, but we should do it in a way that is respectful and trusting in our king. Because even in the face of opposition, what does verse 4 say again? The Lord in heaven laughs. He thinks it's silly that these have a love for power that they cannot attain. He laughs because of the promises that Jesus has taught us in Scripture, they stand. That even the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. That no weapon fashioned against the people of God will ever stand because he is the true king. Which brings us to our next point. There is a true king. And this text speaks very vividly of him. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten. Now that, again, that word begotten here is not referring to uh, being born or a beginning here. That's not, that's not what he's constituting here. This isn't a, 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 a beginning psalm or a, a being born psalm. It's a coronation, it's the anointing that he's talking about. I have begotten you today. As for, as ask of me, he says in verse 8, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, as we just alluded to in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see throughout the history of God's people that there are power-hungry kings who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Go back to the Exodus story, and you can see Pharaoh in Egypt. Again, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. 
And then you go to the New Testament, and you can see Herod and his violent decrees, and you can see Nero, and, and, and again, um, most of the apostles were martyred under his reign. And you can see all these leaders. And William Plummer, who was a, a pastor, he once observed this in one of his, uh, in his teachings, that in history, of all the records that we have, uh, there, there are 30 high-ranking officials in the Roman Empire that, that we have records of that, that proclaim that they were very zealous against the persecution of Christians in the early church. And he says, this is what happened to all 30 of those high-ranking officials. One became deranged, one was slain by his own son, two were blind, one drowned, one strangled, one died of br- brutal captivity. Seven died of loathsome deaths and diseases, three died uh, by suicide, five were assassinated by their own service, eight were killed in battle or died in prison, and the remainder were Im- got immobilizing diseases, which he says, as he commentates on this psalm, gives a new meaning to this. He will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. Because as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. In high school, uh, I went to high school with my brother. He's two years older than me. He was a senior. I was a, I was a freshman. Um, the kindest way I could put this, I love my brother to death, but uh, he was kind of a bully in high school, <laughs> like a bully of all bullies. Um, he had kind of this bodybuilder complex. Uh, he, was, he was as strong as an ox and as aggressive as a snake which made him a really good athlete, um, minus his height stature, which is a sore subject for him, but um, I passed him in middle school. Uh, anyways, um, it, it made him someone to be feared in high school, but not me, because he was incredibly protective over his younger brother. And, and, and what people understood very quickly was that if you messed with Wesley, you got the fury of Will. Any, any moment that you tried to mess with me, you had to deal with the fury of will. That's what you get when you mess with Wes. Now, the Lord is no bully. He is perfect, he is righteous, he is just in all his ways. But what this psalm is reminding us is that when you mess with his anointed, you mess with his people, you get the fury of a holy and just and sovereign God. I know that's heavy. But Psalms 2 is reminding us that there is one true king who has all the power, and who is sovereign. As Walker Percy, who is an American novelist, once uh, was asked why he believes in Christianity, this was his response. Where are the Hittites today? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today there are Jews, but not one single Hittite? Even though the Hittites were a great flourishing civilization, while the Jews nearby were weak and obscure people. His point is like the foes of God in the Old Testament, Midian, Assyria, Babylon, the, the Hittites were another powerful, ambitious, and aggressive global force, but they are gone. You read in history books of the fall of Babylon, you read in history books of the fall of Rome, but that was God's doing. That was the teeth of the lion of the tribe of Judah, fulfilling his promises here, that when the nations raised and the kings of the power set themselves against the Lord's anointed, he will speak to them in his wrath. Psalm 2 reminds us the reason why people name their children after people like Joseph and Isaiah and Esther and Mary and the 12 disciples, and they name their dogs after Nebuchadnezzar and Nero and Zero and Herod, right? You get the picture? It may sound harsh for us today, but it would be completely unfaithful for me to neuter the perfect holiness and justice of Jesus Christ the King here. He is the Lamb of God who willingly sacrificed his life for us, but Psalm 2 reminds us he is also the Lion of Judah. He is severe just as he is kind. He is full of conviction just as he is full of compassion. 
As one commentator puts it, and I love this so much, at the end of the psalm, it reminds us there is no refuge from the Lord, but there is only refuge in the Lord. In other words, God is saying here that he has put his anointed one here to save us from himself. That he alone is the true king who can rescue us. There is no one like him, and we are built to give ourselves to this all-powerful king. We are built to stand before and adore and to serve and to know this king. There are seven, seven plus billion people in the world, and one-third of those believe that Jesus is king. How else would that be true unless this text reminds us that there is a king of kings beyond every king, that there is a greater power on display from that king than every earthly power, that there is a Lord who is sovereign and above every other Lord. And if we reject this king, then our hearts will inevitably find another king to adore. Our hearts will seek out someone else. Even if we try to reject the idea that we need a king in our lives, our hearts will intuitively do it. We will find someone to adore. We will find some saviors to grasp onto. We can't reject that in our being. We will find a king and we will adore him. And what this text is reminding us here is that if we are not adoring the Christ the king, the anointed one, this passage reminds us there is no hope. Because God says he has set his king in Zion and he has given his king the whole earth. As the book of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 2 in, in verse one, or chapter 1, it says this way, To what earthly king or to what angel could God truly say, You are my begotten son? To what earthly king or whatever angel could God ever say, All the ends of the earth are your possession? You see, in the New Testament, we find the message of Christianity is, yes, there is one true king. There is a Messiah, and he is coming back. He is Christ. He is the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is King Jesus, and he is anointed, and he is begotten to rule because he is the great Savior who rose from the dead. There is no one who has done what he has done, and there is no one who will ever do what he is doing. He is the one true king, which leads us to our third point today. How do we live for this king? There is a way to live for this king, but how do we do it? What does it look like? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what we notice is, is we started this psalm series in, in Psalm 1, and we're ending in Psalm 2, which is, which is appropriate because you typically would read these psalms together. Uh, like part 1 and part 2 of the same psalm. And in Psalm 1, we talked about how there is this, this kind of diversion of paths in life. You can take the way where you, you end up in the seas of scoffers, or you can take the way of living the righteous life in which we're rooted in Christ himself, in the Lord. And here we see that diversion again. The psalm is, is bringing us to this distinct option to respond. That we either serve, rejoice, and kiss the king, and we find refuge in the blessed life in him, the psalm says. Or we won't serve. We won't rejoice. We won't kiss. And it says we will perish. As I said earlier, there is no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. There is no in-between. This psalm does not let, let us off with an in-between here. If we live for the king, that means that we put his yoke on our back. And his yoke is freedom. It is not bondage. 
Any other yoke is true bondage. Any other yoke will actually bring us down. It will bring us to a place of, of perishing, not freedom. But when we put the yoke of the king on us, the one who has died for us, the one who has sacrificed us all, the one who sits in heaven and laughs, the one who is in control, we will blossom to our fullest potential as his image bearers. It is by serving him with fear. It is rejoicing in him. It is kissing him. It is loving him. Because the truth is, is that when we put his yoke, which is easy and light upon us, we find that we can find full satisfaction who we are, blessing in life, purpose and hope in life, because we have a king that when we serve him, guess what he does? He serves us. We have a king who when we rejoice in him, he rejoices over us. We have a king that when we kiss him, when we show him the honor due, he honors us. And it also means that we get to experience the blessing of the promises of his kingdom in this passage. Look back at verse 8. He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And this happens because of something that verse 4 will teach us, that there is one who sits in heaven. The Bible talks about the one who sits in heaven. Hebrews 10 tells us of the one, the only one who sits in heaven right now. Hebrews 10 tells us that it is Jesus. After his finished work, after his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven to be with the Father again, it says in Hebrews 10 that Christ has sat down at the right hand of God. And for now, as always, he lives to speak affectionately and fondly and defensively and protectively of his people to the Father. That is what it means to have refuge in him. And he speaks over you, he speaks for you, he is in your place, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father at this very moment, but mysteriously, what we're going to experience in just a moment is that he comes and he sits with us at the table during communion. Just as he reclined with his disciples who needed him, and they, they responded to him as king, and he graciously, he graciously received that, he comes and he sits with us as a sign of his friendship with us, as a sign of our refuge in him, that we are in his family, that what we get to experience in just a moment is a Thanksgiving meal dining with the king. It's not a snack. It's not a little bit of enjoyment. It is a Thanksgiving meal that we get to dine as a family around the table with our king. And so with Psalm 2, hopefully what it will do for us in this moment as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, hopefully it will fix our gaze on Jesus and just glance at our hearts, okay? It, it will allow us to glance at the world's circumstances and the, the anxieties of this world and gaze at Jesus because oftentimes we want to do the opposite if we're honest with ourselves. What we want to do is we want to we want to gaze upon the anxieties and the fears and the things that make us feel out of control in this life, in our hearts and in the kings of this earth, and we just want to glance at Jesus as we walk by. But Psalm 2 reminds us that we can put aside that anxiety, we can put aside those fears of the raging problems of this world and in our hearts, and we can gaze and feast upon Christ because he is the one who is in heaven right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he laughs, and we can laugh with him today. Because he says, I have set my king on Zion. That is past tense. That is established. That has happened. Which means that the promises of the New Testament, like Ephesians 2, has happened as well. That as he sits in heaven, Ephesians 2 reminds us, we are already seated in heaven with him. Meaning the future promises are ours today. So we can live our lives in this world that is full of raging kings and a raging heart and say, kiss the sun and be blessed. 
Happy are all who take refuge in him. Safe and protected are all who take refuge in him. Why? Because as Isaiah 9 is going to remind us, and, and this is a little preview to Advent for a moment here, uh, as we get ready for that, Isaiah 9 is going to remind us that, that King Jesus is the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and where, he, where, where will he reign? Isaiah 9 tells us that he reigns on the throne of David, just as the psalm teaches. And of his reign, and his government, and his peace, there will be no end. In other words, the promise, the future promise of Psalm 2 is that Jesus, when he comes back, he will not just tweak the problems of this world, he will return with a massive overhaul of all that is evil, of all the raging and the plotting and those who have set themselves against him. And we, as his people, as those who trust in the anointed king, will experience his glory and his beauty forever increasing, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever intensifying. There will never come a moment where we will say, this is the limit. Because in every single moment, we as the finite humanity that we are will experience the wonderful glory of the infinite king. And that means every moment with the king will be better than the last. That is what we get to look forward to as Christ our king. So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I invite you to really focus on the words that we say quite often here from the Apostle Paul. That we remember the Lord's death until he comes. The king will come. He is the king we need today. So as we eat and drink at the Lord's table today, we do so to strengthen ourselves so that we can live in hope and we can take refuge in him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.